As a result of the Incarnation, Christianity changed the world. The cultural ramifications of Christ's coming, while mostly ignored by the modernists, cannot be ignored or overlooked. This sermon explores the result of Christ's coming and the transforming power of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We're all covenant reading coming from Isaiah and chapter 45. Isaiah and chapter 45, beginning in verse 11, beginning in verse 11 through verse 14. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet Isaiah writes this. Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives. Not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Thus saith the Lord, The labor of Egypt, the merchandise of Ethiopia, and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee in chains, they shall come over, and they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. Luke writing the Acts of the Apostles, the physician Luke accounts this to us in chapter 17, first 10 verses, chapter 17, 1 through 10, by the same spirit that moved Isaiah, so does Luke write. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Jews a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews." Thus far as the ring of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now, beloved, whenever a culture begins its ethical graveyard spiral downward into avert atheism and paganism, all remnants of the ethical standards of Christianity, along with its celebrated traditions, are 
gradually done away with until there's nothing left whatsoever. One obvious development in our current history is the explosion of blatant and vicious attacks, not only upon the incarnation of Christ, but against every aspect of Western civilization's traditional Christianity. Now, curiously, we never see any attacks against Buddha or Krishna, Muhammad. We don't even see any attacks on the mythical Santa Claus. What we see, however, is attacks on Christ and Christianity. So we only see an attack upon the incarnate Christ as relates to his birth, his reign, and his law. This attack, obviously fueled by pent-up and baited hatred against the Lord and against his Christ, is nothing new. It's as old as the incarnation and the crucifixion itself. Natural man, as a result of the fall of Adam, is unwilling to admit his rebellion against the Lord and therefore naturally conspires with other God-haters in order to eradicate God, his Christ, and his law from the memory of man. And this is why the psalmist was so intent on asking that question, the king of Israel, why do the heathen rage? Don't they understand that this is futile? Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing against the Lord and against his Christ and set themselves against them to break their counsel and to break their bands? Now, while seeking to repudiate God's absolute standard of righteousness, sinful mankind reverts to their fallen, fallible, fickle nature. Their thoughts on what is right as opposed to what is wrong. They think that they know better than God. They have embraced the serpent's lie, in other words, and proclaimed themselves to be as God, knowing good from evil, thereby redefining good and evil according to their own standards. The Apostle Paul states the situation very clearly in his opening statements to the church at Rome when he says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, Professing themselves to be wise, or to be as God in other words, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. So in light of this condemnation, if left to their own devices, without the incarnation and the subsequent saving mercy of God through the Lord Jesus Christ upon his chosen, the entire human race would be doomed without any hope whatsoever. Think about that. If not for the incarnation of Christ, we would be in a dystopia, like you see in some of the movies. We would be, as a people, as a human race, absolutely destroyed, if not for the coming of Christ. Yet it was the intention of God, before even the world was created, to redeem a people for himself. And that is the glory of the Holy Gospel. In light of his wonderful, mysterious incarnation, we have hope. God would accomplish this salvation through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus and his subsequent victory over all things through the foolishness of preaching. By the foolishness of preaching, the world can be changed. And the world has been changed. Consider what David says concerning the victory associated with the incarnation of the Lord and its cultural ramifications. In Psalm 22, 27 and 28, David says this. As he looks 
toward the coming of Christ as he reflects upon the incarnation and the hope attached to it, he says this, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before him. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. He understood what the ramification of the incarnation really meant. And this event, which was prophesied thousands of years ago, is now today, in our time, beginning at Pentecost, now realized in time and in history as a direct result of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at His incarnation. That's how important the incarnation is. According to the Word of God, the incarnation of the Lord Christ has far-reaching implications beyond a simple, albeit wonderful, salvation of men's souls. The salvation of men's souls are only the beginning And yet, it is through the salvation of men's souls and the transformation of their minds by the preaching of the Word of God that makes Christ's victory possible. The implication of Christ's coming are both universal and comprehensive in that they affect the entire order of all human existence. And to reject this is to reject and deny history itself. The impact of the incarnation of the Son of God affected and still today affects every area of life globally, but especially within Western civilization. In other words, Christ's kingly majesty, which is a direct result of his incarnation, death and resurrection, includes all aspects of the culture. All aspects. Every aspect of the culture, beginning with men and then spreading forth into the entire realm of humanity. There was no compartmentalization of Christianity once Christ came. He was able to take over every aspect of the world. And the result of Christ's victory includes not only the transformation and the thoughts and the actions of individuals, families, and churches, but also the transformation of nations along with their policies of law and moral practice. And the list goes on and on. The implications of Christ's incarnation are numerous because they are comprehensive. Now consider the list of Christianity's achievements. Firstly, the sanctity of life was realized through the teaching of God's word. Through the declaration of the word of God, people were transformed from immoral pagan folks to moral, socially acceptable and productive individuals. Christianity also elevated sexual morality, sanctifying the marriage relationship as indissolvable as indissolvable between one man and one woman. Before that, there was no one man and one woman. It was whatever anybody wanted. Once Christianity entered into the civilized world, women received freedom and dignity under Christianity. Charity and compassion for the poor and the sick were, were elevated. Christianity placed its mark on education. Labor and economic freedom is a result of Christianity. Advancements in science also is a result of Christian influences in the area of just laws and jurisprudence. Christianity had a tremendous influence. The common laws of England is where we get many of our laws today in America. But they were taken from the dooms of Alfred during the 800s, which were taken almost verbatim by the law of Moses, from the law of Moses. Slavery was abolished. Race relations were mended because of Christianity. Advancements in in literature, art, and music, as well as architecture, were also a product of Christianity. All of these areas have their greatest glory as a result of Christianity. But once the foundation of Christianity is shaken, 
these areas begin to unravel into moral, legal, ascetic, and tyrannical chaos. And that is why the psalmist asks the question. In Psalm 11, verse 3, the question is asked, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If these foundations of Christianity, as a direct result of the incarnation of the Christ of God, are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You see, that's the question. What are we to do? Now, it should be no surprise that as the influence of Christianity is erased or denied or diluted, the culture begins to unravel as a result. Once the foundations of Christendom crumbles, the world is swallowed up as a result. The sanctity of human life, once recognized as sacred, is now being destroyed. Abortion is as common as grass. People now are seeking all kinds of immorality, sexual immorality, the marriage relationship, all being dissolved. Women no longer finding any dignity, but now we find women being paraded as sexual objects. Charity and compassion, no longer a realm of the Church of Jesus Christ and the people of God, but now is taken over by the state. We find education no longer having its Christian roots, but now being a propaganda tool of the state to control and to destroy. So you see, once the foundations of Christianity crumbles, the world is swallowed up as a result. And what is so frustrating, even to the point of anger, is that those that despise Christianity and the incarnation of Christ, the Christ himself, will still borrow from the effect of the Christian faith without giving it any credit. Even the pagans are borrowing from Christianity. In other words, they're stealing the effects of Christ's truth upon the culture and claiming it as their own. And once again, the humanistic tendency to be as God and to take credit for the work of Christianity shows its ugly head in the culture. The question that the psalmist asks is not answered in defeat. He's not saying if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? As a statement of defeat. He's rather asking a question that begs for an answer of hope. It begs for a plan of action since the foundation is not yet destroyed. And that foundation is laid up for us in Christ, the chief cornerstone, and upon the pillars of the prophets and the apostles. And what we are to take away from the psalmist's question is an answer of hope. In other words, he's asking us, what can the righteous do? In other words, what should we be doing? And too often, the answer comes back by the humanist and by the Christian humanist, which is an oxymoron, but the answer comes back, well, I just need to live my life and be holy. As if to say that I am not an idolater because I'm living a Christian life, but the Christian life lived for the self, is idolatry. So the question is, what should the righteous be doing? And I believe there is much that Christians are called to do simply because they are equipped to do it. All of this is based upon the reality of the coming of Christ and his incarnation. Consider first the theological implications of the incarnation. We must always remember that Christ was born not simply as a babe, When he was born, a babe in a manger, 
He was born as the sovereign king set to rule the nations and to depict him only as a babe in the manger is to strip him of his majesty, but that is usually as he's depicted. I think maybe we should do away with the nativity scene and build a statue of Christ with fire coming out of his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth because that's the way Christ is depicted in scripture as the sovereign king of the universe. But men love to have Christ in babe, as a babe in the manger. They love to see him as the little infant in the, in the manger so that they could, they could control him. But that is to strip him of his majesty. What we should envision when we think of the incarnate Christ is not a babe, but a king, a lord, a mighty warrior coming with flames of fire upon the wicked in order to save his blood-bought bride. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth, the truth that he is the sovereign king. Not to be trifled with, not to be manipulated, not to ask for excuses, but as a sovereign king. And it's important to note that he was not born to become the king, but rather he was born as the king. Notice Revelation 19.16, and he had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not only have the nations of the world misunderstood this, but so many churches, so many pastors have missed this most important truth. And although Christ would not be coronated until he completed his work, he would be conferred with power and authority to actually function in his office as lawgiver, judge, and king especially after the sending of the Spirit of Pentecost, when everything was changed. Pentecost was the proof that something had changed. The world suddenly changed. People were suddenly transformed into something that they were not originally. No longer were small groups of individuals affected by God's grace as was during the Old Testament, but now multitudes were being changed and as a result, nations were being restructured according to biblical, biblical ideas. Within the first 300 years after the day of Pentecost, almost all of the Roman world had been reconstructed biblically. Even as far as China, India, and Ireland, the Word of God was recalibrating the culture. It was a new era. A new dawn of moral, legal, and political liberty under God and according to His law word. The historical event of the Incarnation implies a spiritual, political, legal, and covenantal relationship between Christ and all the nations of the world, obligating all nations to bow before the Lordship of Christ. No one is to be exempt. Not the nations of the Muslim world, not the nations of the Far East, not the nations of South America or Russia, no, all nations are obligated to bow before the sovereign dictates of the Christ of God. The power, authority, and functioning kingly majesty of Christ is not merely theoretical. His magisterial rule, his majestic rule is not theoretical, nor is it a thing that is to come about after the world ends. It is actual and it is happening even when the world is darkened by man's rebellion his continuing rebellion to usurp the magisterial throne of the King of Kings. God is still at work. 
Just because it's dark in our age, just because the churches are apostate, Christ has not come from his throne to sit somewhere other than upon his magisterial throne. His sovereignty, his magisterial rule is real, it's historical, it's even experimental. The priestly authority and the kingly authority of the incarnate Son of God is being worked out now, in our time, in our history, unto a complete victory over the enemies of the gospel, including sin and death. And even though we do not see it, what do we see? Well, the Hebrew writer says, even though we don't see it now, what we see is we see Jesus seated upon the throne, ruling in righteousness, chastening those who deny God, chastening those who forget God, chastening people, chastening churches, chastening families, chastening nations. That's what we see because of his magisterial rule. Now consider what Christ's kingly authority implies. Firstly, it implies total and universal rule over all nations. Secondly, it implies comprehensive governing legislative and juridical powers. Notice what Isaiah says. He testifies of these facts. And it's funny how, how especially during Christmas, when we reflect upon the coming of the Savior at his incarnation, Isaiah 9 is, is repeated over and over and over, and yet the words never sink in. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Oh, we love that part. That's so much fun. Because it's the little baby in the manger with Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the little drummer boy and the magi and all of that. But we forget the next part. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counsel of the Mighty God the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Okay, we could tolerate that, even that, because it even says that, well, the government will be upon his shoulder in the by and by. But wait a minute. It continues, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, from this time even forever. From this time even forever. So in light of this characteristic of Christ's spiritual, political, legislative, and juridical rule, we must conclude that the only proper standard for a com comprehensively prosperous global, political, legal, and just rule is the law of God. Can't get away from it. The only way to recalibrate the nations is to follow the word of God. Thus the nations of the world, if they are to be governed justly, must be governed according to the dictates of the eternal governor, Jesus Christ. And this is what was so disturbing for the religious and political rulers of the first century church, to be told that there was another king that claimed absolute loyalty above and beyond every human ruler was treasonous. No ruler during the Roman Empire wanted to be told that they were under another man's authority, even some low-born Jew. And this was the very real issue during the first century. Notice, not the envy of the Romans, but the envy of those religious leaders. But the Jews which believed not, 
moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, notice, they're setting themselves against the Lord and against his Christ, and set all the city in an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying that these have turned the world upside down, and they have come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And notice this, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. You see, these Jews were statists. These religious leaders were statists. They were unbelievers. They were rebellious humanists, morally corrupt individuals, outwardly religious, but inwardly rebellious to the majesty and lordship of the Savior. They chose the lordship of man, the lordship of Caesar, over the lordship of Christ. These were churchmen. During the first century, those early Christians who refused to worship the state were branded as heretics, treasonists, and atheists by the state. They were looked at as radicals, even revolutionaries. The entirety of the Roman population and most of the Hebrew nation during this time was consumed with emperor worship. Everything was about the state. Emperor worship. Except for a few sects, there was a conscientious effort among the Jews, especially the clergy and the ruling class, to appease the state. The Herodians were those men who, yes, religious outwardly, but they wanted to appease the state, like the Pharisees, like the Sadducees, like the lawyers. And they would appease the state and hope that the state would leave them alone. Let them live in peace. Well, paganism and sin was tolerated. Christianity and its moral compass was not. Christians were seen as rebels and anarchists, inciting radical revolution by the declaration that there was another king, one Jesus. And all the Christians were doing, and all that the Christians were doing was preaching the gospel. That's all they were doing. They didn't have pitchforks and lanterns running to the state house. They were just preaching the gospel in the streets. They were not violently trying to overthrow the government. They were just preaching the gospel. They were not inciting violence. They were just preaching the gospel. They were not threatening to take over the world. They were just speaking the truth. They were simply preaching the transforming power of the gospel of God, which was enough since the declaration of the gospel was in and of itself the power of God to transform men and nations. And it was that preaching the simple words of truth that these rebels, these statists, viewed as revolutionary. Again, note the words of the accusers of Jason. These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. That was true. That was very true. That's a true statement. The accusations against Jason and the people of God were correct. The problem, however, was not with Jason. 
The problem was with his accusers. Notice firstly, the message of the gospel would turn the sinful world upside down since the social structure of the world's order was already upside down. It was already abnormal according to the word of God. It needed to be righted. Secondly, turning the sinful world upside down was precisely what the gospel was for. It was a vote of no confidence for the unethical and wicked secularization of the world. It was not crafted. It was not meant to be tolerated by a rebellious worldly order. It was being preached in order to correct the worldly order. By the preaching of the truth, it was to bring rebuke and correction. It was meant to rebuke. It was meant to divide the light from the darkness and the good from the evil. It was meant to bring freedom from the bondage of sin and the tyranny of wicked emperors. Thirdly, Jason, along with all the faithful, were declaring that there was another king who was superior to the existing Caesar. He was saying, if we were to put this in our modern vernacular, he was saying that this king, Jesus, is superior to the existing state, the president, the Congress, and the Senate. What they were saying was that God, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, was to be given exclusive honor and worship. That is what was so disturbing to this polytheistic, pluralistic culture. This was a revolutionary declaration, just through words. Just by using words, by the power of the gospel. This was a revolutionary declaration since the gospel of the kingdom was originally reserved for the Roman Caesar. You see, the Roman Caesar wanted to be be the Messiah. He wanted to be the king of the kingdom. Andrew Sandlin explains it this way. He says, interestingly, in the ancient world, the evangel, in other words, the gospel of the good news, began in the cult of the emperor, and the emperor and his citizens used his very word, in the word evangelical. They used it for themselves. The important days in an emperor's life was his birthday, how he came to power and so on, were announced throughout the realm as gospels or pieces of good news and festivals were held in his honor of him. The gospel messages were grand. They were public statements of joy and hope and reverence for the emperor. This was the Roman gospel. And that is where the Christians were placed in the realm of the cult of the Caesar, where Caesar had adopted for himself the gospel of the Caesar. The declaration that there was now another king was a competing announcement. There's another gospel which will subvert your gospel. And for centuries, the Caesar was to be regarded as the God-man, much like the Pharaoh. And now with this new declaration, both his divinity and his authority, the divinity and the authority of the Caesar was now being challenged. That was the unforgivable sin. And to make matters worse for the Caesar, the Christian gospel was not a secret message for only a select few, but rather it was a universal message to the entire world. This was an affront to the reigning Caesar, punishable by death, of which many early Christians had to face. Stanley comments in light of this situation, he says, quote, The main challenge of the term Lord was not to the world of private cults or mystery religions, whereon might be initiated into the membership of a group giving allegiance to some religious Lord. The main challenge was to the Lordship of Caesar, or the Lordship of the State, which, though 
certainly political, was also profoundly religious. Caesar demanded worship, as well as secular obedience, not just taxes, but sacrifice. Sound familiar? He continues. He was well on the way to becoming the supreme divinity in the Greco-Roman world, maintaining his vast empire, not simply by force, though there was, of course, plenty of that, but by the development of a flourishing religion that seemed to be trumping most others, either by absorption or by greater attraction. Caesar had provided justice and peace to the whole world. He was therefore to be hailed as Lord and trusted Savior. This is the world in which Paul announced that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was Lord, end quote. Christianity, by its very nature, is a radical faith since it stands in stark opposition to the status quo of the fallen secular world and all other religions. I fondly remember my dear friend, my late dear friend, Buddy Hansen, always said to me, we must unquo the status. We must turn the world upside down. Christianity was radical then and it is radical now. And because of its exclusivity, Christianity is considered subversive and ultimately dangerous to those who worship at the feet of the state and look to Caesar as their provider and protector. True Christianity will not tolerate the pagan god of toleration, nor the equalization of all religions, nor will it allow Christianity to be trivialized in any way, making it co-equal with every other religion on the face of the earth. We must be bold in our declarations. Boldness was the character of the day during the first century. And it must remain that way today. Christianity was and is a belief structure which stands upon the truth, the absolute truth, which means it has a virtue which no other religion can claim. And this is why it is so hated. It is hated because it exposes wickedness and the men and women that practice it. Christianity was never intended to be a politically motivated faith, but rather a faith based upon the absolute truth of God's word, which is eternally righteous, just, and equitable altogether. And that means that in order for Christianity to be faithful, it can never be ambivalent in the face of evil, but rather must be in constant opposition to evil wherever it exists. During the first century, just by declaring the Christian gospel of the Lordship of Christ was enough to bring the wrath of man down upon the herald. Jason, along with his disciples, were being persecuted for arguing against the status quo. They were swimming against the tide of the common conceptions of anti-Christian secular humanism since they were calling the entire world to submit to the Christ of Scripture or be destroyed. Now, we don't, we don't say that anymore today because we, we want to be too nice. But if you do not submit to the kingship of Christ, you will be destroyed. Maybe not now in time and in history, but upon your death, which we all must face, and that is an absolute truth, an absolute guarantee. No way out of this place, but through death. The church was calling the kings of the earth to kiss the sun in a symbolism of submission, lest they be destroyed. And that's what David was saying in Psalm 2. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Notice, he's beseeching them. Be wise now, therefore. Don't be a fool. Don't be foolish. Don't be rebellious. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Be reconciled to the son, in other words, lest he be angry. And ye perish from the way, lest ye be destroyed when his wrath is kindled but a little. We don't hear that anymore. 
Say, oh, you got to be loving now. Oh, you got to be love everybody. Well, you could love everybody, but you could tell them the truth. The gospel's simple declaration is an affront to carnal man. You won't even hear this kind of preaching in the pulpits. Even today, the very mention of Christmas sets the wicked men upon their heels in violent intolerance because it emphasizes lordship. And they know it intuitively. They know it. It emphasizes that the Lord has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they hate that lordship message. More than any other truth of the scripture, they hate the lordship message. The fundamental organizing truth of Christianity is a lordship issue more than a salvation issue. Sandlin continues in his comments. He says, quote, The fundamental issue to the Christian faith is and always has been the lordship of Jesus Christ and not the salvation of sinners as such. The salvation of sinners is an aspect of Jesus Christ's lordship, but his lordship is not simply a result of his work as savior and redeemer. Christ's lordship is the governing theme of the New Testament just as it was anticipated in the Old Testament. Theologian John Frame explains it this way, quote, The name Lord is as central to the New Testament as it is to the Old Testament. Remarkably, in the New Testament, the word kurios, meaning Lord, which translates as Yahweh in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, is regularly applied to Jesus at a time when theologies are regularly built around central motifs like history, hope, love, reconciliation, and liberation. It's a bit surprising that so few of them focus on the concept of divine lordship. In view of the centrality of lordship in the scripture's own doctrine of God, and specifically in its Christology, it would seem to be an obvious choice as a central motif for a theological discussion, end quote. The central theme of Christianity is the lordship of Christ. Peter and John had declared the name of Jesus, which signified to both the religious and the political community that Jesus was Lord and King. He was sovereign. He had authority. Notice what Luke records for us here. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there any salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And notice this final statement. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby men must be saved. That originally was a statement reserved for Caesar. And what the apostle is doing is he's, he's taking it away from Caesar and he's giving it to the Christ. According to Virgil, writing in regard to Caesar Augustus, who ruled during the advent of Christ, he said this, This is the man, the one who has been promised again and again, and the turning point of the ages has come. He was talking about Caesar. The title of Augustus was, in fact, a divine title. It was to imply that this Caesar and every other subsequent Roman ruler was both Lord and Messiah. So when the apostle uses this phrase, there is none other name whereby men might be saved, and applying it to the Christ, it sends shockwaves through Rome. 
R.J. Rushton, he observes this. He says, quote, democracy had come of age in Rome in the person of a man who was declared to be both the people's voice and the voice of the gods. The title Augustus, however, was a divine title which made Octavian Zeus incarnate. The world savior had come in the person of Augustus. As Steffer has surmised, the symbolism of coins issued in the empire, salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus, and there is none other name given to men in which they can be saved. Even in Jerusalem, daily sacrifices was offered at the temple for the welfare of Augustus. End quote. And so Rushdun is accurate when he asserts, conflict between Christ and Caesar was thus inescapable. The incarnation and the doctrine of Christ as both God and man means that the true God who is the triune God and Jesus Christ who is the heir of all things has all earthly and heavenly authority bringing all things into submission and subordination to him and him alone. This concept of divine subordination flew in the face of Rome's desire to subordinate all things under it. The incarnation, of course, blew that apart. Owen Chadwick, in his work on the secularization of the European mind in the 19th century, comments, he says, Government likes religion to bless its act, crown its dictators, sanction its laws, define its wars as just, be decorous masters of national ceremonies. And since on grounds of religion, religious men may criticize acts of law or wars or modes of waging wars, Government prefers quietness and contemplation to excess of zeal. They want us to be quiet. Just be quiet. Keep your religion in your home. Keep it in your families. Keep it in your churches. But you dare not bring it into the political realm, the realm of money, the realm of society, the culture and morality. Oh no, that is not where it belongs. Rush Dooney examines this idea of Christianity being the enemy of the state in his work on sovereignty. He says, quote, It is the Christian who is increasingly viewed as the enemy of the state as he stands in terms of the crown rights of Christ the King. He thereby challenges the sovereign claims of the state in the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Increasingly, in the eyes of the sovereign state, this is the unforgivable sin. Martin Silbretti rightly observes this way. He says, quote, The state seeks a church that it can use, that is subordinate to its own authority, and that acknowledges the state's sovereignty and dutifully goes through its ritual motions without disturbing the power structures the state has painstakingly amassed over time. Rubber stamp religion is acceptable to the power state. A faith in a sovereign God that is actually taken seriously presents the state with a problem. We need to be the problem. The modern state hates the true church. The apostate church hates the true church. They seek to, at every turn, neutralize it and make it obedient to its will. And that is why biblical Christianity, when it is true biblical Christianity, is viewed as radical and revolutionary. The incarnation of Christ as the King of kings and sovereign over all kingdoms is an unnerving reality to rulers who would be both Lord and Messiah. And this is why Herod was so interested in the message that the wise men gave of a divine king. But he was not interested in in acknowledging Christ as king or worshipping him. He was only interested in killing him. 
the parallels between Israel's statist mentality while in Rome, Babylon, and Egypt, and the church's statist mentality in our modern era are plain to the biblically astute. What is needed is to break free from this bondage. And that is more than just a mindset. It's an action. What is needed today is true regeneration coupled with biblical practice. We have too many religionists that are not transformed by the renewing of their mind, by the intervention of Christ in their lives. Sandlin sets the strategy for biblical change very clearly with his statement. Only God can create a Christian. But Christians must consciously work to become and create cultural leaders. Christian culture is not possible apart from Christians who actually lead the culture. This Christian must know God, not merely about God. He must know the Bible, all of it. He must know the history of Christianity, of Western civilization, of the church, of theology. He must know the times in which we live. He must know himself. He must know his cultural enemies. But he must not only know, fundamentally, he must be. Knowing springs from being. He or she must be God-intoxicated. Just think about that. God-intoxicated. Drunk with passion for Christ. Drunk with passion for His church, for His people, for His culture, for His world. Intoxicated. He must be consumed with the faith. He must lead both by idea and by example. He must be a man of God who is not less a man of this world because he is a man of God and in fact is a man of this world precisely because he is a man of God. End quote. When Christ entered the world as a babe, he entered as king. That is what must be pressed forth in our day by each and every one of us. He entered into this world so as to radically change the world through a gospel message of repentance and Christ's righteous lordship. And it is the faithful preaching of the gospel of Christ that will shake the nations and conform them to an ethical standard of justice, mercy, and peace. May it come to pass that the church of Jesus Christ would finally reject the empty claim of the state's salvation power and royalty and embrace the true king and only savior that was born in Bethlehem of Judea to reclaim what was originally his in time and in history. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.